Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. The thing I want to, I want to share is, is something that's so close to my heart. Um, for the last couple of weeks, actually, this is a little different, but for the last few weeks, I've been unpacking this moment that uh, God shared with me, and, um, and it came out of that practice of Bible in a year, daily readings. Any, any Bible in a year people in here? Oh, man, I cannot encourage you guys. I jumped in last year, mid-year. I jumped in in June, and so I'm like, oh, I got this. I'm going to read two days a day. I'm going to read two things a day, and I'm going to finish by the end of the year. I didn't finish by the end of the year. I did build a habit, though. A habit that has been transformational. As somebody who like been studying God's word for 20 years since I turned 19, this has been one of the most transformational disciplines. I've just never, I've never grabbed a Bible in a year program. And it kind of takes all the guesswork out, right? Like if, if you've ever studied the Bible, you might have felt that thing that I felt sometimes when you sit down and you're like, I don't know what to read. Like you hear you hear people have these stories where they just opened it to this like incredible God breathed thing. And you're like, if I don't hear something amazing? Does that mean I didn't open it to the right spot? And it's so easy. It's so good to have like a plan laid out for you. Uh, and it creates a different problem is what I've noticed. The problem that it creates is the fact that now I have a new assigned reading for the next day. I'm like, I'm still chewing on that incredible thing God showed me yesterday. So there's like, it's too much, but it's good. Uh, and it's, and going through like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was unpacking this moment that God showed me in Exodus, uh, in Israel's story, this moment where God brings Israel out of, out of slavery. Transformational moment. They've been in slavery for 400 years, and God brings them out. And he does this through these dramatic displays of power, right? Like the plagues, the 10 plagues. And it's so dramatic. Egypt is so in awe and terror of God's power that by the time they leave, God, uh, Egypt is literally pouring out gold and weapons to Israel, saying, please leave. And Israel walks out feeling themselves. They are feeling good. They are feeling proud to be God's people. They're feeling something special. Um, and then they get to the very edge of Egypt. It's like four days after they leave. And there's this moment that God showed me something I'd never seen before. There's this moment in, uh, in Exodus where it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through Philistine country, though it was shorter. Everybody say shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Which means, even though God did this dramatic display again and again and again, and just like awesome power, plague after plague after plague, that God knows their trust in me is so fragile still. Because at this point, Israel hasn't participated yet. Israel has been the recipient of God's covering, the recipient of God's deliverance. They have not yet had to actually participate in trusting God. And God knows that their, their trust in me is so fragile. If they go straight to the promise, they won't be ready for the promise. They're going to face an army. They're going to face the Philistines. And they're actually going to choose slavery over the uncertainty of the Philistines. And that moment just like landed so deep for me. I said, oh, my gosh. The Lord intentionally took them on a longer road to the promise. And he did that. 
He did that out of love. He said, I'm going to take you through the wilderness. He actually ends up keeping them in the wilderness for a year before they even approach the promised land for the first time. They're in the wilderness for about 14 months, most scholars say, eating manna off the floor, right? Like eating, like it's, it's, God manifests these situations where Israel has literally no choice but to depend on God. And what is God doing to them? He's trying to give them the conditions of trust building. Wilderness is always about trust. Wilderness moments, I don't care what the subject is, it's financial or relational or emotional or traumatic, it doesn't matter what it is. At its core, it's that thing too. At its core, all trial is about building trust with God. And so there's this, there's this moment about a year after that, they, they've just left Egypt, they had this big dramatic display of power, and then Israel wakes up in the wilderness, and they're not too fond of it. They're not fans. In fact, time and time and time again, if you guys have been reading Exodus, time and time and time, you get like the, the, the swan song of Israel as Israel grumbled against the Lord. And the thing that you hear, you read again and again, more than almost any other statement is they said, why did you bring us out here to die? And then God does something incredible. He shows up, he takes water out of a rock, or he puts manna on the ground for them to eat, or he, he protects them in some way. And then like five minutes later, why did you bring us out here to die? And so they, they keep him in the wilderness for 13, 14 months. And then there's a moment where Israel, trying to grapple with why are we in this process of trust building? This feels wrong. Even though God showed up in this dramatic display of power, what I thought was power was going to deposit me in the promise. But because power initiated the process of preparing for the promise, they doubted the power. And so he brings them through this year. And there's a moment at the end of this year when God actually brings them to the land of the Canaanites for the first time. They haven't entered. Israel hasn't entered. They send in a posse. They send in a little exploration team. One guy from each tribe, men represent, there's 12 guys, and they send in this uh, scout team. And there's a moment where in Numbers 13, the men come back, these, these scouts, they come back from the promised land. They come back from the land flowing with milk and honey to give their report to Israel. What have we found? We went in, we explored, what did we find? And it says, they gave Moses this account. This is 1327. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. It is everything God said it was going to be. Here is its fruit. It says they actually had to like create planks because the fruit was so heavy and so robust. But the people. Everybody say, but the people. But the people there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The descendants of Anak, the Anakites, are a race of people that were legends or like rumored to be like warrior giants, like a massive, massive. And then right after this, right after this paragraph, it actually says that the men of this scout troop, all but Two, so 10 guys. Caleb and Joshua stand up. Caleb and Joshua declare, we should, take the, we should take the land today. Surely God will not let us down. We can do it. Everybody else in this, in this troop, these are the emerge men right here. The other men in that scout troop were not emerge men. Because what they did, it actually says, did you say cherish men? <laughs> That's complex. I don't want to use the word cherish in a negative context, but I see where you're going. All the other guys in this, all the other guys in the scout troop, it actually says, Moses takes the time to write this. It says that they spread a report, meaning they spread stories. 
They told stories to the nation of Israel about the giants, the warriors, the fortified cities, and they spread fear throughout Israel to where Israel went back to their old way and said, why have you brought us out to the desert to die? And what follows this? What follows this is like a little bit rattling for me. So what we know, whenever we read the word but in God's word, whatever comes after but is what they really believe, both for the good and for the bad. This is not just for the Bible. This is also for your relationships, like in life. If somebody says, I'm really sorry, but. Right, that's how you really feel. And there's this moment where Israel grumbles, they rebel. They accuse God of abandoning. They accuse God of not being trustworthy. And God says this to say, God says this to Moses to say to the nation of Israel. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, or I'm sorry. Yes. Don't doubt yourself. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall, every one of you 20 years and older, who has counted in the census, who has grumbled against me. Not only is that rattling because an entire generation, the adult generation of Israel, lost their inheritance like that. God said, okay, if this is what you are going to declare over your life again and again and again, even though on a daily basis I'm showing up, on a daily basis you have what you need, on a daily basis I'm proving myself to you, if you are going to continue to preach death, to speak death over your life, that you're going to die in the wilderness. And what's, what's crazy about this is when I would when I would have read this story before, I would have seen this as punishment. You don't get to enter. I'm angry with you. you I, I'm, I'm taking this away from you. But he says right there, I will do to you the very thing I'm hearing you say. I am not going to overfunction for you. I'm not going to coddle you into the promise. I'm not going to take you into something that's actually going to harm you because you haven't done the work of building your trust in me. If I, if I drop you in the promise, you're going to see you're going to see the adversity and you're going to run. And so he says, okay, I will give you what you've declared. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't strike that generation dead. He lets them live out the prophecy that they've been speaking over their own life, this generation, for the next 40 years, and they all die in the wilderness. But they spoke it. It wasn't God's punishment. They declared it. It was their faith in action. Does that make sense? And when you... When you have a moment like this, when you have a moment like this where you realize, uh, or, or I read a moment like this and I realize, man, I can actually, I can actually skip the training. I can, I can show up for the trial, but I can skip the training that God's means for me to get out of that trial, and it can cost me something real. It can actually cost me something massive. And, and what that leaves me when I, when I read about that, when, when I hear like, I will do to you what you've said, it makes me want to know how to train. It makes me want, what does it actually look like? What is it, when God calls me through a trial, because God does not bring evil into our lives. He brings us through evil, right? He, he uses all things, all, everybody say all things, all things for the good of it, but he does not call evil. What does it look like to train so that we come out the other side of that trial ready for more, just 
like Pastor Mike was saying, just like Pastor Ida was saying, that every time the, maybe the, uh, the scary, like that number last year didn't feel as scary anymore. I saw God show up in that moment, so I upped the ante. And then that number didn't feel as scary. It's like, oh my gosh, maybe God could do more. That is what our spiritual life is supposed to look like. And so there's this, there's this tool that I found a long time ago, um, which I love. It's been so helpful for me. It's simple, but some of the most powerful principles are incredibly simple. It's a tool by a guy named Dallas Willard. He's a brilliant theologian. And he basically asked the question, what are the core components, the most essential ingredients of spiritual growth? What is that actually composed of? And he comes up with this triangle. He calls it the triangle of spiritual growth. He was a theologian. He was not a wordsmith. I like it. It's simple. At the top, you have the action of the Holy Spirit, or what we would call the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The actual, the power of God that we cannot, that we cannot access to break off the power of the death and the grave that we cannot break off outside the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And we, we tend to think, that's the whole spiritual process right up there at the top. We tend to think, man, I, I, I attend church or I attend Emerge. I go to Emerge and it feels vulnerable, man. I, I've, I've been struggling. I, I kind of don't even want to face the other guys there. And then God shows up in a powerful, powerful way. And I, just like Pastor Michael saying, I actually borrow the faith of the men around me. I borrow their faith, and I believe that maybe God could transform my life too. Maybe God could have something better for me. Maybe God could bring me into a new level of freedom. And I borrow their faith, and I write this, note, this word down on the board, and it feels, so, it feels so vulnerable to even write the word down, let alone to share it. And maybe, oftentimes, I think one of the most vulnerable things about that process is throwing that word into the fire, declaring as an act, right, as an act of declaration that I actually believe God can free me from this. And we have this moment where we throw the board into the fire and we're relying and we're experiencing, we're encountering the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? The problem is that power initiates process. It doesn't bring us straight to the destination. I I learned a lesson when I got married. Um, I really thought I was like, ready. When a lot of people, I I think I may have shared this before in the past, when a lot of my friends were like buying video games and stuff, I was buying marriage books. I was weird, like a teenager, like a teenager. And we had this, uh, we had a marriage counselor, a premarital counselor. Um, Contrary to my story, I highly recommend premarital counseling. We had a premarital counselor who probably gave us the worst advice we got when we were engaged, probably the single worst piece of advice we got. It was basically, we went in for an appointment. He gave us some personality assessments. It was really cool. We were super excited. We went back for our second appointment, and I am not sure what what happened. I don't know why he shifted. Maybe he, like, expected to get paid or something. I don't know what was the problem, but we went into our second appointment, and before we even had a conversation, we were probably in his room for 10 minutes. He basically said, man, I was looking at your test. You guys are good. You got this. You guys are going to have an amazing marriage. Go, go, Be blessed. I think his exact words were, uh, you guys are ready which is the worst advice. I'm not saying don't tell young, young, engaged people that they're not ready. Don't say that. But say, you are ready. Buckle up. Because your marriage is about to go to work on you. It's about to, it's about to bring any sort of fear, any sort of trauma, any sort of insecurity, any sort of ego, any sort of indirect or false ways of getting your emotional needs met. Ooh, it's going to go right for that. That's what marriage does, because God loves us. He doesn't leave us in the wilderness. And so we walked out of that room 
walking on air. We thought we were like, yeah, that tracks. We are pretty awesome. Like, that didn't seem weird to us. And then you wake up like a year in, and it's like, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought. And then two years in, and then three years in, and I was, I was deep in hidden behaviors, and I was deep in, in like a, this addiction that had pre-existed, right? I thought, well, I know that I'm struggling with this now, but when I'm married, I won't struggle with this when I'm married because I'll have the real thing, right? No, no, no. You perform what you practice. So if I'm not training in purity before marriage, I'm not going to walk out purity in marriage. And that, and that behavior just went covert, and it went into shame, and it metastasized. It just grew underneath the surface. And about three years into our marriage, we went through a crisis, which God used as the most pivotal, life-changing, like, turning point in my entire life. But it was a wilderness. And there's this moment where I remember realizing that I kind of I thought, man, there's, like, the terror, right? The, the courage required for me to rally and confess to my wife all of this hidden behavior. I thought, man, once I do this, it's going to be so much better. And it was better. The wilderness of having no integrity ended. I, I, I was restoring my integrity. But a whole new wilderness started. I didn't wake up the next day after that confession like, my marriage is amazing. Sarah's good. She trusts me. We're connected. I don't struggle with hiding at all. I know exactly how to name and vulnerably share all of my feelings. No, 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 no. I woke up the next day and... It was a little bit better. It felt good to have that off my chest, but there was a lot of anxiety. And then a couple weeks later, I slipped back into behaviors. A couple months later, I slipped back into behaviors, and I realized, oh, this is the weeding process. So I've owned it. I've taken it captive, right? I've declared. I've confessed. I brought it under the power of the cross, but God wants to train my heart. He wants to renew my mind. He actually wants me to train. He wants to train me to think like a married person, not just act like a married person. Are you with me? That is the work that gets done in the, whole, in the wilderness. And so in the, I totally lost my train. Yeah, holy, the spiritual growth. So the power of the Holy Spirit, it sustains us and it initiates spiritual growth in our life, but it doesn't do the work for us. I will do for you exactly what you say. Are you tracking? The next section is the place where we have the most agency. The next section is spiritual discipleship. I have never seen a church on earth with the kind of discipleship that exists here at Awakened Church. You have incredible leadership, you have programs. I've never seen anything like it. I didn't grow up in an environment where discipleship was such a visceral and intentional part of the culture. Discipleship is not just going to a mentor. That's a critical part of it. Discipleship also includes what we call the spiritual disciplines. And there are many, many, many. Um, The three that I would say are most essential, this is day one. If you want to grow in God, if you want to spiritually grow and to see those, uh, the chains that God has broken fall off. Because a chain being broken is not the same as me taking the chains off of my body. I'm still weighed down by them. If you actually want to see the chains off, these are the three most, most critical spiritual distance. Wake up every day and study God's word. Why? Because after the moment of being spiritually made new, like Pastor Katie was talking about, after the moment of being spiritually born again, I'm a new creation. All spiritual growth after that moment is the renewal of the mind. All spiritual growth is training to think in what the Bible, what Paul refers to as the mind of Christ. Are you tracking? So we grow up, we wake up every day and we study God's word. Secondly, is cultivating a personal, private, and powerful relationship with God for yourself. And we do that through prayer. Waking up every day and spending time with God by listening and by speaking. 
And the best way to do that is to start off in his word. Listen to the word, then listen to his voice, and then say what you hear him saying in his word. Bring, bring your greatest fear. Bring your greatest struggle, but name it as a fear. Name it as a struggle. Fear is only destructive when its influence over us is denied. When fear that, like, fear that I'm not good enough, fear that I'm not capable, but instead of showing you, I'm scared that if I show you this part of my heart, that you'll reject me, instead of saying that to you, which takes back the power of fear, I say, well, whatever, it's never good enough for you anyways. I identify with it, and I show you anger. Fear is most destructive when its power is most disowned. So what we want to do in the spiritual disciplines is we want to become identified with God's word. We want to hear what his voice sounds like, and then we want to start to speak it. And lastly is what I call a lifestyle of confession. Confession is not a bad word. I grew up, and confession meant you go to somebody, and you talk about how bad you are, and you just talk about how, like, I'm hopeless, and I'm really, really bad. That's really what that word meant to me. And I was, this is several years ago, I remember studying this word, and God, God just, like, led me to look up with this word, confession, in the Latin, means confessore. Fessore means to stand. Con, with. The word confession, in its most essential, means to stand in agreement with. It means to stand with. So when I go to my brother and I say, I'm struggling again. Last night, I stayed up too late. I got, it got, I got really lonely. I got overwhelmed and I struggled again. What I'm doing, I am breaking agreement with the behavior, and I'm realigning, I'm standing in agreement with who God says about me. That's all that confession is, and confession goes far beyond that. In the same, well, I'm going I'm to mention James in a minute. In the book of James, he says, uh, confess your sins one to another that what? You might be healed. That there's a, there's a power in, in the witnessing process, in the mirroring process, in the being known process that happens in confession. To be known by another person. In my opinion, once you have that foundation of God's word, you have the foundation of these habits that, that are strengthening your muscles. Confession is that process where we actually take, we actually take the chains off of each other. So, so I wake up the next day, I'm still struggling with that behavior. I wake up the day after that, I'm still struggling with that behavior. If I take every opportunity, I go to my brother and we strategize. All right, what are we going to do next? Okay, you know what? Let's, let's get a flip phone. Let's do something else. Like We're going to start to eliminate these windows. And by fighting in the discipline, right, fighting in the place that I can control, we are actually taking off the chains in the spiritual that we can't, we can't access ourselves directly. Does that make sense what I'm saying? That when you think about what is discipleship, it's so, so, so important that we all understand discipleship is non-negotiable. You are being discipled by somebody. Discipleship is not what we opt into when we go to a mentor and we say, well, you disciple me. Discipleship is just the process of influence becoming your formation. So my wife came to me about, a year ago, year and a half ago, and she's like, by the way, uh, Nikki, Ricky, Dicky, and Don is, it's off the watch list. No more Ricky. No more this TV show. It's one of my kids' favorite TV shows. I got distracted by a friend. I'm sorry. Um, Nikki, Ricky, Dicky, and Don is a show that I had seen a couple of episodes. We don't watch our kids. We don't let our kids watch stuff that we haven't, like, checked out, right? And it looks harmless. My wife noticed after they started really liking the show and watching it consistently, she noticed that they just started, like, snapping at each other. They just started getting like kind of rude and cruel towards each other, just harsh tone and harsh. And she started by addressing it, like, what's going on? Hey, listen to the way that you're talking to your sister. How do you think she's, she's like trying to work with the kids. And then she was walking through the living room one day and she heard Nikki or Ricky or one of them say a comment, say a statement that she had heard my daughter say. She said, oh, you're being discipled by Ricky. They're normalizing 
tearing each other down. They're normalizing this animosity. They're normalizing this kind of harsh, sarcastic, critical humor. That's not how we talk in our home. We lift each other up. We have a culture of honor. In fact, we build and we elevate each other with our words. We speak life over our words. Nikki and Ricky and the others do not get to disciple you anymore. So that show is out. That voice in our life is out. Is it evil? No, it's probably not evil. But we don't want to be formed by the influence of somebody that isn't going to direct us into the mind of Christ. We, there's, no, there's no getting out of it. Discipleship, it's either Disney or it's, uh, I'm trying to think of a D word, Pastor Mike, whatever. But you're being discipled somewhere. And to be able to, to own that for yourself and say, okay, this feels weird to do this. It, it, it feels weird to like wake up in the morning. Everybody else is asleep. I'm usually snoring right now. It, it felt like a really great idea when I was at a merger. It felt like a really great idea when we were all together on Sunday morning and we were like um, singing and when, when I had the support and it, it felt like connection. But now it's just like me alone in my living room with a book. It doesn't feel that spiritual anymore. And, and for you guys to remember that anytime we take on a new behavior, it's going to feel weird. It's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel kind of alien to you. It's going to feel like maybe you might struggle with like, this doesn't feel like me, or is this really authentic? And what it makes me think of, forgive me, I'm just going to be honest, it, for the guys like over 30, do you remember the first time you put on skinny jeans? Because if you're over 30, that means you grew up in the 90s with me, and you wore comfortable clothing when you were younger. And then somewhere around 20 years ago, I don't know, like around the early 2000s, you started to see guys walk around in women's jeans and like, that looks really wrong. That looks really weird. And then, and then it gets normalized to you like, actually, it looks really sharp. Actually, it looks really good. And you go to the store for the very first time and you're trying them on and you're like, nope, it looks good on him. It looks wrong on me. It looks like I skipped leg day. That's what it looks like. It just looks like sprayed on pants. The first time you do these things, it's going to feel weird. And when you show up every day, when you show up every day, you start to go, oh, this is actually a part of me. This is actually a reflection. This is congruent. This is in alignment with who I am, God's word, studying it, spending time with the Lord, speaking to him. Because when you guys are born, none of you guys know how to do shame when you're born. Somebody else has to teach us how to do shame when we're born. But if we get enough exposure to it, then we learn how to do it all by ourselves, don't we? It's the exact same way with the disciplines. We don't know how to speak life over ourselves if, if death has been, has been normalized. But if we, if we continue to do that, it will become normal to us. It will actually become intrinsic. When I think back to that like, early phase in my marriage, being known by Sarah, sharing with her uh, thoughts or feelings, or yes, I, I said I was going to go you know, do my college homework, but I ended up surfing YouTube for an hour, right? Like those are things I would never share with her. Now, I have been known by my wife for so long. Her not knowing who I am feels wrong. Now the alarm goes off and be like, that I, it, it's like it hasn't happened until I've shared it with Sarah. But the transformation is we do something new, just like Israel in the wilderness, and we experience safety in the different. We experience the safety of that, and then that becomes home. That becomes our new normal. Are you with me? Oh my goodness, I'm way off my notes. But we stay until the last chain falls off. This last section, this last section, what we call life. And I love it because when Dallas Will introduces this concept, he's like really intentional to emphasize. He means the mundane. He means the, the boring. He means the hard. He means the, the adverse, right? He means the challenges. He's talking about trial, which is really not 
like an inspiring idea. I was kind of lucky when I first gave my life to the Lord, one of the first things that my mentor told me to do, he said, Brian, I want you to go memorize James chapter one, verses two and four. I didn't like these verses when I first read them. I had not followed Christ. Uh, I had not followed the Lord for that long. And that verse, you, you go to James and you read it. It says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So by James's account, where do we become mature? It's actually in the trial. That's where we're made whole. That's where we're made complete. Other translations use the word perfect. And if you just start at, if you just stop at that first sentence, consider it pure joy when you face trials. That sentence is absurd. That sentence is like offensive. Consider it pure joy when I like get cut off on the freeway. Consider that really. Consider it pure joy when my like my spouse like snaps at me and treats me disrespectfully. Consider that joy. Consider it pure joy when my kid's going through something that's scary to me and I don't understand what it is or I don't know where the money's going to come from. Like, cons- like, is that what you're talking about? Then we go back to Israel. Israel woke up every day in a trial. They woke up every day and they didn't have an economy. They didn't have a farm. They didn't have all the resources and the comfort and the security. They didn't have certainty and predictability, but they had a God who protected them every single day. If they had woken up every single day in the wilderness and said, I'm going to take joy in the manna that's on the ground. I'm going to let it register in my nervous system that this means God is with me. He is for me. He is protecting me. He has a vision for my life. He has a plan for my life. He is not going to let me fall. If they had taken joy in that, they would have had a very different day when they reached Canaan. And we have this picture. We have this picture, actually. What does it look like if somebody's ready? And there's an, a whole other verse. I'll, I'll, go, I'll do this a little, bit, a little bit quickly. There's this whole other section in 1 Samuel where we look at Daniel's life. Now, Daniel was a sheep herder, not a warrior, not a soldier. And Daniel's brothers were on the front lines fighting the Philistines. More, more specifically, they were watching the Philistines taunt Israel. Everybody was terrified of this guy named Goliath. And there was one day where David's dad says, hey, will you take this bread and this cheese to your brothers? And David runs to the front lines because David has the heart of a warrior. And he runs to the front lines and he watches Israel stand shaking as Goliath taunts the nation of Israel and defies the God of the nation of Israel. And it makes Daniel, or it makes David really angry. And David starts like, why is nobody acting? Why is nobody like standing up for who we are, standing up for our God? And the first reaction you get by the other soldiers is, hey, bread boy, shut up. Like, we're not, we're not looking for your feedback. But the king hears about this guy because nobody else is willing to face Goliath. He hears him and he brings David before him and he's disappointed. He said, oh, you're like 14. I thought we had a soldier. And the first thing Saul says to David is, I'm sorry that you're not gonna be able to do this. But, but David fights back and this is what, this is the resume that David gives Saul, trying to convince Saul to let him stand up for God. He says, but David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it. I go after it with a club and rescue the lion from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this, listen, to both lions, plural, and bears. 
and I will do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the lion, the Lord who rescued me from depression, the Lord who rescued me from death, the Lord who rescued me from my broken marriage is going to rescue me here too. And he was able to stand up, because I think, man, if, if David had shown up day one and he hadn't had that formation, if he hadn't spent time seeing God come through and be the strength that he lacked when he's facing lions, he would have been just like everybody else. But he said, oh, this, this season of my life that felt like it, it was meaningless, this whole season of my life that felt like alone, nobody was watching me. I was all by my, nobody was cheering me on when I tackled the lion and I took it down. And there are people in this room right now who are going through a season you feel really alone. You're going through a season of anxiety and you don't know how to break it off. Or you're going through a season of finances. You're going through a season in your marriage and you don't know how to break it off. And to know that if we resist this season, we can stay right there, but if we actually accept that season, we say, God, this, just like Moses said to Israel, this right here in the brokenness, in the debt, in the fear, this is where I will see the deliverance of God. Then God uses that moment, and years from now, you're gonna be like, well, I've, I've already beaten I've already beaten depression. I've already beaten a broken marriage. We've overcome this. God restored our marriage. God will restore us here too. And it takes me back, if you keep reading, it takes me back to what we heard those men say when they came back from the promised land. They said, yes, the land is amazing, but the people. And if you keep reading, there's this moment where uh, David has his own but. David goes up to faith the Philistine. He goes up to faith Goliath. Goliath talks some smack. And this is David's response to him. You come at me with sword, spear, and javelin. Yes, you are mighty. You are a giant. You are powerful. But I, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, whom you have defied, and today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and I will give your dead body and the bodies of your men to the birds and the animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And to realize, if we go back to that, man, the but reveals what I really believe. The but reveals where my focus is. The but reveals where my trust is. But I come against you in the name of God. I have taken, God has helped me defeat lions. He's helped me defeat bears. You are another mountain that's too big for me, but I've done too big before, and he's going to take you down too. That we need to realize right in the middle of the trial, right in the middle of the scary is exactly where God wants to be the deliverance. He wants you to say, yes, I get it. You stumbled again. You did that thing that that just breaks your heart. You went into rage, you went into the thing. That's exactly, that's exactly where I want you to cry out for me. Call your pastor, call your friend, call that person and turn towards me right there and let me form you in the wilderness because what you're gonna see is you do that again and again and again. It takes me back actually to this moment I had a few months ago, my buddy John has been trying to get me to go to jujitsu. He's met me and he still wants me to go to jujitsu. He's like, Brian, you gotta go. It's amazing, it's the best. You're gonna feel incredible. But just know this, the first time you go, you're gonna be really bad. And then you're gonna keep going, but don't worry, you're gonna keep going after one, two, three months, you're still gonna be really, really bad. You're gonna be the worst person. It's gonna feel like everybody takes you down because they can. But if you keep going and you keep getting schooled and you keep getting, and it's gonna feel like you're making no progress, 
I'm like, this is a sales pitch, right? You want me to go. If you keep going three, four, five months, you're going to feel like you're making no progress. And then someone new is going to come. I say, you're going to practice the technique of the day on that guy. And all of a sudden you'll be like, man, when I thought I was wasting my time, my muscles were getting stronger. My brain was getting sharper. My technique was getting polished. God was developing me the whole time, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. If you will show up in the wilderness, study God's word, renew your mind, practice confession, and engage in personal intimacy with him, you're not going to feel the breakthrough every single day. But what you're going to realize is when you get three months from now, six months from now, and a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys that, man, burned those boards or they were really on fire that first men's service, that first men's prayer Tuesday morning, and you're, you're still going on, on month six, and, and a lot of them aren't there, you can be like, oh, this, this is what God was doing in my heart. He's, he's building me up. Next year, I'm not going to be the guy that's, that's standing around the fire hoping that God's going to break something off my life. I'm going to be the guy that's holding hope for the other men around that circle. He's saying, God was, I was right there last year. I was right there last year and God broke it off my life and I have freedom and my marriage restored. If, if, if we train. Does that make sense? So let me just ask you, um, I'm doing a lot better time-wise than I was last service. Take a second, just close your eyes. Because I know when when I was preparing for today, there were several things that the Lord showed me about. Man, there are moments when I wake up in the wilderness and the trial actually sends the exact opposite message to me. The trial doesn't send the message, God is training me. The trial sends the message, God has abandoned me. The trial leaves me feeling like I'm not good enough. It leaves me feeling there's something wrong. It leaves me feeling like I've been denied ignored, found insufficient. And I know there are people who are going through a trial and you feel alone. There, you're going through a trial and you wonder, man, is, did I take a wrong turn? Was my faith not strong enough? And if you can relate to that feeling of alone, I just want you to raise your hand and I want to pray for you. And there's another group of people that you, uh, you wrote that, that word down on the board. And when you threw it into the fire, there's a part of you that's like, man, am I gonna be writing this word down next year too? Even as you were holding hope, even as you were leveraging the faith of the men around you, there's a part of you that was still in fear and you're wondering, man, am I just gonna struggle with this forever? And if you're either one of those groups, I just wanna pray for you, so raise your hand. And I see you guys, I see you, I see you. Wow, thank you. God, I thank you for every courageous hand in this room, just like you teach us in confession. Every raised hand is a broken agreement with a lie from the enemy that sin and fear have the last word in our story. Every raised hand is them standing in agreement in the spiritual realm with you, with your power. They are leveraging your guidance. They are leveraging your mentorship that you are training them. Lord, I pray for restored hope and faith that even right now as they hold the thing that's un incomplete they hold the thing that feels so uncertain that they would they would hear you say right now right here this this is where you're going to see my deliverance this is where you're going to see my love and my provision don't wait for the promised land to believe that i'm with you god we thank you we thank you 
for the power that is accessible to us, Lord. And we pray that you would guide us every single step in those simple disciplines, studying your word, serving, being known by our brothers and sisters, attending life groups. We, we would, you would guide us in those simple disciplines that are gonna strengthen our spiritual muscle and those chains one by one by one are gonna fall off. We're gonna wake up realizing, oh my gosh, that thing that felt insurmountable yesterday, I can't even imagine struggling with that today. God, we thank you in advance for the work that you're gonna do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen. For more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.